Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're, uh, we're doing something not so characteristic of me, and we're covering more than five verses today. So, stretching my own ability. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to be starting in verse 12, but before we begin, let me, let me pray. Gracious God, I thank you that you walked this earth. I thank you that you incarnated, that you stood uh, in, in the same type of soil that we stand on, and you know the type of people that we know. I thank you that you came and you spoke truth. You fulfilled your plans. I thank you that your word is authoritative. It's, it's perfect. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And I thank you that you fulfilled our needs in order to stand before you justified through faith. I pray, God, that you would help us to see in your word that which we need to see, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, we would be comforted where we need to be comforted. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, our verses for this week, although it's 12 verses, it's actually really hard to disconnect them from the, the end of chapter 11. Uh, depending on the circles you've run in within Christianity over your lives, you may have encountered preachers who emphasize God's wrath or God's love. You might even encounter a preacher that tries to uh, distinguish God's character, say he's schizophrenic, or as I'm calling it, it's the condemnation of God or the compassion of God. And some preachers emphasize one. Some preachers might even say they're in conflict with one another. Um, and and the, the, the reason that these two things should not be seen in conflict, and the reason that I say you can't really divorce or, or separate our 12 verses from the remaining few verses of the chapter, is because Jesus does not separate those two things. In fact, Jesus uses the condemnation of God to display the compassion of God. And, uh, and while I say that you're not supposed to separate these two things, I'm actually going to do that this time. And, uh, and, and that makes me uncomfortable. But that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so um, the reason that they should not be separated, the love of God and the wrath of God, the condemnation and the compassion, the reason they shouldn't be separated is not because they're, diff they're not different things, but because in theological terms, we want to refer to God as immutable, unchanging, and impassable, meaning cannot be caused to emotionally suffer. Those have been affirmed throughout Christian history, but when we try and emphasize the wrath versus the love or the, the condemnation versus the compassion, we actually lose the very nature of God. So the reason I bring it up now is because our next verses are really going to focus on the condemnation of God, on the just condemnation of God. And next week, we're going to be looking at the, the, the unearned, the gracious compassion of God. So uh, I also bring it up because there's a way to read these verses that makes Jesus sound whiny. 
there's a way to read these verses to uh, to think that maybe maybe uh, Jesus is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. Maybe maybe one day he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and he throws in the towel and he starts getting all mad and he says these things. Um, maybe maybe it's it's it, we read these verses in a whiny tone and we forget that God has said of Himself in Malachi three six, "For I, the Lord, do not change." So I, 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 I want to try and read these in a way that doesn't sound whiny, that doesn't sound as if God's, or, or that, that, that Jesus is trying to say this in a way that's like, oh, you poor souls, I wish you had power, or I wish I had power over you. Now, in these verses, he's, he's announcing his deep affection for the truth while also announcing his sure condemnation and judgment. And we have to remember that he has a perfect right to do this. He is not wrong. So let's, let's read. It's Matthew 11, verses 12 to 24. From the days of, this is Jesus speaking, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heavens? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of the Lord. What we just read can be summarized like this. Since the coming of Jesus, greater condemnation is on those who reject the gospel than in the time before he came. Now, why do I say that? Why, 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 do I, why do I clarify and say, since the coming of Jesus? Well, let's, let's keep that summary in mind. Just, uh, again, since the coming of Jesus, greater condemnation is on those who reject the gospel than in the time before he came, or, or the age before he came, if you prefer. Uh, so, notice in verse 12. Hold on, I'm a bad pastor, and I was reading off my tablet instead of my Bible. I'm going to fix that now. Uh, notice in verse 12 what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven, how he says it. He says that it has suffered violence since the days of John the Baptist. 
What the Lord is declaring there is that there has been a defaming, a mocking, and actually a literal physical persecution happening on those who've come as God's messengers. In this time, you had John the baptizer, John the Baptist coming. He was coming to prepare the way of the Lord, right? He was coming to, 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 to usher in Jesus's arrival. And then you also have Jesus, who's God incarnate, who's his father's messenger. He's, he's, uh, he's apostled by his father. He's sent from his father to do what he's doing. And how does he describe what he's been met with so far? That he has suffered violence. Remember, this whole chapter started with John the Baptist or John the Baptizer being in prison. He's imprisoned right now. So Jesus saying these words, he's rebuking everybody listening. Uh, John, the, John was coming again to prepare the way of the Lord. That's Isaiah 35, 8. Uh, he was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming, as Malachi 4, 6 says, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. John the baptizer was not coming just to announce judgment, which actually is what most prophets do, uh, but he was coming to, to restore hearts so they would hear and receive Jesus' message. But was John successful? Yes. But he was actually doing it in the tune of judgment. What I, what, I, what I mean is that John was coming, and people were going out to see him. That was last week. People were going out to see him, but they were going out to gawk at him. They, 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 they were going to see a spectacle. They were going to see this, this weird guy who wears camel's hair and eats locusts and wild honey and, and hear this message of repentance. And there were many who were getting baptized. That's why his name is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. But there were also tons that were going that were trying to catch him, trying to, trying to figure out where is he wrong that I can... I can show myself better. But, but who was saying that, right? Who, who would be somebody that would go out to hear a prophet or a teacher just to prove him wrong? Well, it was going to be the people that were indignant. The people that, that knew better than this weird dude that wears camel's hair. It was none other than the Pharisees and the scribes, and even like the normal common uh, Jewish person. It's not that all the commoners were suddenly flocking to John being, yes, this baptism of repentance. I need to repent from my sin. No, there were people that were going out, normal average Jewish person that was going, mm, mm. they were walking away. They were apathetic. They were unaffected by it. So what we should hear in verses 12 to 13, what, should, what we should hear Jesus saying is essentially this. The ungodly and the hypocrites do violence to the kingdom, sometimes even thinking that they're doing the kingdom a favor. Think about it this way. Here's the Pharisees and the scribes, experts in knowing and, and living the Old Testament, right? The Pharisees have all these rules in place. They know exactly how they need to live out the Mosaic law. 
but maybe they don't like the conviction that he's bringing or 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 maybe maybe they don't like being called out by him because John actually calls him a brood of vipers. Uh, that's in Matthew 3, 7. And then Jesus repeats that actually in our next chapter. He calls the Pharisees and the scribes a brood of vipers because they're waiting for him to slip. Vipers like to hide in the rocks and they strike out at their prey when it comes by, but, but a snake doesn't just strike its prey. It doesn't just strike things that it's gonna eat. It also strikes the unsuspecting victim who just happens to be walking by on their way. Would you like to be called that? You brood of viper, vipers, right? You wouldn't want to hear that. You'd, you, you'd, you'd, you'd feel cut to the core. That's, that's not what I'm doing. But the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're experts, right? No. No, they're not experts. They're actually false teachers. And Jesus is calling them that. They're leading God's covenant people away from the truth. They're leading God's people into falsehoods. But they don't think they are. They think they're in the right. They think that they are vindicated because they're teaching the truth and they know what they're saying and, and whatever else. But really what's happening is they're bringing violence on God's people. They bring violence on the kingdom, deceived by their falsehoods and their own self-righteousness. They're ultimately trying to take the kingdom by force. They're trying to shove their way, shove their, 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 their doctrine and teaching apart from Jesus. Think about it. The Pharisees and the scribes should have been the first to line up to Jesus. They're biblically educated. They know what they're saying. They, again, they know, they know. Take finger quotes, right? They know what they're saying. They should have been the first to flock to Jesus. See his miracles and go, yes, this is the Messiah. But what do they do? They try and, they try and find where he's going to slip up. Same thing with the scribes and John the Baptist. So instead of, 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 of hearing this message and responding to it in their hearts and in their minds, they stand against it. And that's actually the illustration Jesus is bringing, right? Uh, he's bringing this illustration of, 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 of a custom in verse, well, in verses 16 and 17, um, of, of where it was a Jewish custom that if there was somebody playing a happy tune, you would want to go see it. You'd go and you'd gather. You'd gather with them and you'd dance with whatever they're celebrating. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's someone being freed of a debt. You would go and you would celebrate with them. Or, or you'd hear a dirge played and you'd want to go and you'd want to see what all this mourning is about. And you'd mourn with the people around you. You'd, you'd, you'd feel sad. And so Jesus is relating John's and his ministry as this. It's, a, it's, it's meant to call people. It's good news. It's bad news. And how are the people responding? They're like children playing in the marketplace, completely and blissfully unaware that anything is happening. A modern parallel would kind of be like this. Let's say, let's say you're walking out to Business Highway 20 here. Maybe you're going to food fair, and, and there's a crowd of people standing in the middle of the street, 
as a semi-truck is coming down the hill. They're all looking at their phones, blissfully unaware, texting maybe even each other, because who doesn't text the guy next to them? Um, and they are completely blissfully unaware of it, and, and you see this happening, and you shout at them, move, get out of the road! Just go, May, uh, get, get out! And they just stand there, like completely unaware. Or, or maybe, a, maybe a happier example. Uh, let's say there's a wedding gathering and, and the couple has exchanged their vows and they're introduced as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. But nobody in the crowd is even paying attention. They're counting the beams in the ceiling. They're counting, uh, they're, they're, they're thinking about what they're going to eat at the reception and they completely miss the joyous moment. And so the couple is introduced and not a single person claps. Or you have that one dude, there's always the one guy who just claps at everything, right? And he's the one lonely clapper. John the baptizer and Jesus came to announce the, 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 the condemnation of God and to show the compassion of God, both of them in different avenues. They were trying to announce the truths of God, the show the plans of God. But here stand crowds of people who are completely unmoved, completely unaffected, completely un displeased. And they're seeking only their own benefit and gain instead of actually hearing what God is doing. And this is another truth of the ungodly and the hypocrite, as Jesus calling them out. They're unmoved by the truth of God. That's what Jesus is illustrating in that. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. They're unmoved. Their heart is unaffected. Instead, they're trying to find fault for the one proclaiming the truth. That John... Oh, he's just a pretentious, pious, and weird dude. He's got to be possessed. It's the only explanation. And then this Jesus guy, you know, he's doing these incredible miracles, and he's saying things that, man, really, really sounds like Scripture. But look at the people he hangs out with. How could, how could he do that? He's just trying to get, get good with rich people so that he can eat and drink his fill. He's a glutton, drunkard. Only explanation. Neither of these things were even remotely true. Yet these apparently were charges that people were bringing up against Jesus and John the Baptist. They were blaspheming God, trying to find fault in his own son. They brought false charges against God and his messengers, dishonoring and vilifying the truth, thinking they were probably doing God a favor. So here I bring a warning. If you're hearing the truth of God preached, and I'm not, I, I'm really having a hard, I had a hard time writing this truth and not sounding self-righteous. So I, I, I'm not speaking as if like, you're, you need to hear the word of God from me and I'm the greatest teacher ever. That's not what I'm saying. So please don't hear me saying that. And if you do hear me saying that, then I need to repent because it's something with me. It's never you, it's always me. I'm just kidding, that's, that's totally wrong. 
Uh, anyway, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm bringing a warning. If you hear the truth of God preached and you are unmoved in your heart by that truth, then the problem is not in the proclaimer. The problem is in you. And I'm looking at the door as I say this because I don't want to look at anyone. And listen, I've been in those shoes. <laughs> I've been the one that's had to repent, that sat under teachers who maybe I didn't like the way they phrased things. It's not that the truth was wrong. It's the way they said it. And I sit there like mulling over in my head, man, I think I could teach that better. Self-righteous stupidity. That's what that is. When I thought, oh, I could say that better. In so doing... I was missing the whole point, and I was ruining my heart's affection in it. I was ruining my delight in the truth of God because I was self-righteous. So if you are unmoved in, in your Bible study and your reading of the Bible, or if you're playing the self-righteous card and pretend like, like you can't be taught because you already know better than everyone else, then you're the one Jesus casting judgment on here. Plead with God for repentance that he might restore you and, and, and move your heart. Don't waste another moment. I, I, I mean this seriously. Don't waste another moment. Pray to God. Pray and plead with him that you need your heart warmed by his truth regardless of the proclaimer. Because you don't want to be like the apathetic hypocrite or the self-righteous viper. You would be doing violence to God's kingdom. When Jesus ends that, uh, ends this thought process, he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The means don't justify the ends. That is not what Jesus is saying here. What Christ actually means when he's ending this section, right? Um, he's, he's, he's condemning the foolish, self-righteous person and telling them that they're not actually seeking after God. He's saying that these people, these fools, as opposed to the wise, the fools are hard-hearted, they're unaffected with the truth, they're bringing violence against God's kingdom, they're defaming God, they're, they're false teachers or even false professors of the faith. They are unwise to see what God is actually even doing. Their eyes are closed. If you have ears to hear, I, I got ears, I totally got ears. That's what they're doing. So Jesus is vindicating the wise and the truly righteous. I mean, in his case, it's him and John the baptizer, right? Uh, Jesus is vindicating the wise and truly righteous in contrast to these fools, saying that wisdom is justified by what God does despite the fools. Not to spite, despite the fools. Uh, Puritan commentator um, Matthew Henry actually says, uh, one, of, one of the wonderful things about Matthew Henry is that he uses semicolons like I do. So uh, it's just one long run-on sentence. But he summarizes Jesus' rebuke here pretty well. He says, these children of wisdom justify wisdom. They comply with the designs of Christ's grace, answer the intentions of it, and are suitably affected with and impressed by the various methods it takes. And so evidence the wisdom of Christ in taking these methods. The lives of the wise display true wisdom. God continues to bless the wise. Uh, 
despite maybe their, even, their own foolishness or even despite the, the work of the fools to ruin them. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Uh, Jesus continues his condemnation by highlighting the, these areas that he's been to. Uh, there, there are two important things to remember in this, in this section of verses. Well, three, if you count Jesus is not whining. Um, but Jesus is not just frustrated and speaking irrationally, right? Um, he's, he's God incarnate. He's immutable. He, he knows and has the right to condemn them. Therefore, he's announcing true judgment as this, this new generation of history is born. Um, and two, as with most prophetic judgments, there, there's kind of an air of poetry in what he says. Um, if you take him like too literally here, you can actually think, well, if God would have sent his son sooner, more people would have been saved. Look, these people would have been repented, sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus is being poetic in the prophecy. He's not being heretical. Just in general, Jesus is not heretical. We'll just, the, as a general rule, just apply that. Um, he's actually, uh, he's actually uh, saying to these towns, shame. The people in the towns, their shame. He's not despising his father's timing. Uh, notice in verse 20 where, where Matthew, the writer of the gospel, throws in a note that only a narrator could have, right? Uh, he, he, he ascribes rationale to Jesus' statement. Um, so I, I, I love when Matthew does this because Matthew, by and large, doesn't really throw in these narratival things other than like, and then he went to. Um, so he says, then Jesus, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. To quickly review, in our time of, of Matthew, we've actually mostly been in Capernaum. Most things, Matthew says, this was in Capernaum, this is in Capernaum, and especially in recent chapters, ever since the, ser excuse me, ever since the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Chorazin and Bethsaida, Matthew actually didn't mention. But apparently Jesus had been there at this point. He's probably healed the sick, preached the gospel to the poor, given sight to the blind, and all these other miraculous proofs of his earthly ministry. So Jesus is switching from like linking himself with John the baptizer. He's actually saying, look, actually, look at me. I, I'm, I'm here. I've done these things. Um, Jesus is pointing to his proofs when he says these things. But what did the towns do? They did not repent. We know for a fact that a lot of people that were sick were healed and uh, they didn't give God glory. We have several instances throughout the gospel where Jesus heals these people and uh, then you never hear from him again. And when I say several, I really mean most. So these people were healed. They had the gospel preached to them. And for whatever reason, their hard-hearted, hypocritical, apathetic selves did not repent. So when we read verse 21, we have to remember that Jesus is, is, is uh, again, not saying, if only my father would have sent me sooner. He's not complaining about his dad like all of us do. I mean, mo most of us. I'm sure, I'm sure he's never complained about. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, uh, but he's, he's actually condemning these places for their hardness of heart. 
What Jesus is saying is that these places he'd been to, been to miss the whole point. We're all familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it, even, even the, the kid that's never read the Bible has at least heard the, 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 the names of those towns. But, but just to review, they were wicked places. People were, were violated sexually. Sin was celebrated. Righteousness condemned, literally to the point of trapping them in their home. Tyre and Sidon, though, were places that you'd be familiar with if you've read Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, judgments like Isaiah 23, God actually commands Tyre to weep because the destruction is coming for him. Same thing for Sidon, uh, which, which was a city that neighbored Tyre. Both of them were in Lebanon, not Lebanon, the town of Oregon, but Lebanon. Uh, both of them were port cities, and both, within 100 years of their rebuke, suffered incredible destruction. It was prophesied before it happened, hundreds of years before it happened. But it happened just as God had promised. So what, what Jesus is doing by comparing Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom is he's, he's pulling back these biblical memories of earthly judgment and, and saying, you who reject me are worse off. He's angry, but he's angry without sinning, just to make that clear, Ephesians 4.26. And also, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then Jesus' anger is always fine, like it's never out of check. Uh, he's, he's immutable. He doesn't, like, one day really love puppies, and the next day the puppy piddles on his carpet, and he wants to kick it out the door. That's us. Um, Jesus is putting his anger correct. In the, in the right place. So he's comparing the people of those cities, the cities that he had done these mighty works, and saying, you are worse off than these other places of incredible biblical judgment. So the main point we want to draw away from these verses is that rejection of Jesus brings worse punishment. Now, the reality is that all who reject God suffer, suffer his wrath eternally in hell. Hades is even mentioned here. So if somebody ever tells you, eh, Jesus never talks about hell, mm. Mm. Read, read the Gospels. Uh, anyway, um, all, who suffer, or all who reject God suffer in hell. Uh, but now that Jesus has come, this new age, this new generation has come. Um, this generation was not only the generation where Jesus walked and did his miracles, although he's specifically talking about them there, but it's also the time period we live in. People who die and have the opportunity to hear the, the mystery of the gospel shown, and they reject it, are worse off in their punishment than those that hadn't. Romans 1 makes clear that everybody's accountable. There is not a single person who gets to heaven on a pass because they never actually heard the gospel. Romans 1 is exceedingly clear on that one. But for someone to hear the gospel and refuse to repent, they are much worse off. For people to see Jesus doing these miracles and not repent, much worse off. 
you can, it's easy to think, well, when Jesus was walking the earth, it was totally different, right? Jesus was on the earth. He was healing people. These things were so clear. Um, and, and now, you know, maybe we have an excuse because, because Jesus isn't physically here anymore. No, that's not what, that, that's not, that's not true. God has ascended. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of his Father, and he's omnipresent. Even if he's not physically here, he's here. Jesus is here. Who did we sing to? Did we sing to some dude through the roof? Or did we sing to God who is present? God worked out his mysterious plan of the gospel. Colossians 1.26 so the person that saw the miracles of Jesus, they didn't know that he died and rose from the grave. Now we know that. We are even more accountable than, than the people that were right there looking at Jesus. And to say that God doesn't work miracles is, is ignorant. Why? Not in the same way that God works miracles, but when a person responds to the gospel, you could, you could throw the gospel at a person a thousand times, and the thousand and first is when they accept it. Why? Because God calls them to salvation. He cracks the hard heart. He opens it up to the gospel. The fact that sinners come to salvation is proof of God's miraculous continued work. Sinners who would by no means come to salvation, ever. If ever given the opportunity, suddenly they, they, they hear and see. Their eyes are open. Their ears are open. They believe and receive. They respond and repent. We're Baptists. We have to alliterate everything. Uh, but but, but this, this is something that proves God's existence. Me, I would have never come to salvation. I heard the gospel twice a year, every year of my life. I've said it before. And there was one time that I heard it and it clicked. Once. It is worse off for people now to reject Christ than it was then. And there's a day of judgment coming, right? It, it's going to be more bearable for the citizens of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. This is a future tense, the day of judgment. Sure, they're, you know, these people that didn't trust God, like they, 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 they will be in hell. I, I, but, but, but for places where Jesus has been at work, where there's been a gospel effort, for somebody to reject the gospel there, man, that's awful. Our own town of Toledo has had gospel efforts, right? And there have been people who've come to salvation, people who've rejected salvation. The people around us are destined, destined for destruction. Don't we care? Don't we? And I, I, I mean this not as a, a, a rebuke against anybody in this room except me. <laughs> Don't I care? The word woe is used here used with frequency. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, uh, Capernaum. What does woe mean? The Greek word, woe I. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Uh, <laughs> but the, the word woe means how great the suffering. How great the distress is going to be for you. 
the citizens of a town who remain wicked, who have their hearts unmoved, they're apathetic, um, they're self-serving false prophets, false professors, false believers, they bring violence against God's kingdom and they will suffer destruction. Don't we care? Don't I care? Because the reality of their condemnation should spur us to confront the ungodly. Not with self-righteousness, ooh, look at meanness, but with the gospel. And the condemnation of false believers and teachers, their, the reality of their destruction, should actually spur us to stand against them. They do violence against the kingdom, and they're worse off than the people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Now, I said at the beginning of this sermon, and I know I'm running long, I'm sorry. Uh, I said at the beginning of this sermon, the reality of this condemnation can really only come mixed with the reminder of God's gentleness, of his compassion. God tends to call the unlikely to salvation, not the self-serving hypocrite. And he does so compassionately and, and graciously and kindly. So in the midst of all this condemnation, our next week is going to have Jesus erupt in praise for God actually bringing people to salvation, even though these towns are doomed. They're, they're done, man. Like, these people are going to die. Jesus actually erupts and says, uh, says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The, 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 the justice of God needs to be seated with the gentleness of God. Needs to be. And I don't want you to just hear, hear me say, woe to Toledo, woe to, to anybody that, that, that has self-righteousness without hearing the command to repent. I'm going to ask you to spend your week contemplating what Jesus says in these verses. Think about these verses. I, I, I'm going to implore you to plead with God to give you the, the strength to preach the gospel to the ungodly and to challenge those who stand against God's work. Or perhaps if it's you that stood in the way, been apathetic to God's truth, been unaffected uh, as God works, I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask that you plead for repentance. Even if you don't think you're the person, just pray, God, give me repentance. See, see how he works. He is faithful to rebuke the condemned, and he's faithful to reveal his son to those who come to him. The Christian life is a life of repentance. John the baptizer was right. And to quote the apostle John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This last sentence is not a command to unbelievers, it's a command to believers. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, if you think you are sinless, you do violence to the word of God. You do violence to God himself, to his truth. So do not be like the ones that Jesus condemns here. Let's pray.
Lord, I plead for repentance. I plead that your condemnation would cause us to both shake in fear of your justice, but that it would also cause us to erupt in praise that you have saved uh, of us in this room the most unlikely of people. You've saved us for your kingdom. May we praise you for it. Praise you for your glorious grace forever and ever. It's in your wonderful name I pray. Amen. Friends, remember the condemnation of God as a fearful thing, as a thing to plead with God to not be apathetic, to not miss his work, but also rest in his compassion. Go in peace, saints.